From the Daily Mail newsroom, I'm Amelia Hempel, and this is Scoop, a Mail Plus podumentary. The remarkable tales behind the Mail's biggest stories. For years, there'd always been an element of mystery about Prince Andrew. Straight from the journalist who got the scoop. Is this the sort of thing we want our royal family to do? I don't think it is. Coming up, an encrypted email leak, a Kazakhstani billionaire and a royal corruption scandal that shook the British monarchy. The Duke of York generating a new wave of questions. It was a seemingly quiet Monday afternoon for the Daily Mail's investigative feature writer Guy Adams. And then the phone rang. I picked up the phone. There was a man talking. He said very simply, he said, I've got a story for you. The mysterious man on the phone told Guy that he had an email correspondence between some very famous and influential British people and some Kazakhstani oligarchs discussing shady business deals. What got my ears to prick up a bit was when he said he had documents. So my initial reaction, obviously, was to say, look, um, you know, who are you? And he said, I'd rather not tell you. I don't want anyone to be able to trace where these documents have come from. So how did you get hold of them then? So he asked me to download a a program called Crypto Heaven. And it's basically a a very simple program you you download on your computer and it allows you to send and receive emails that are absolutely untraceable. So I did what he said. And I think that evening there was a ping on my computer and a couple of dozen files dropped into the inbox. Guy had recently filed some articles on human rights issues in the oil-rich former Soviet nation of Kazakhstan. Since the fall of communism, thanks largely to, I suppose, what you'd call an endemic corruption, the small elite have amassed huge wealth. To give you some context here, Kazakhstan is located on the border of Russia and China and has a human rights record consistently rated as poor. The president, Nursultan Nazarbayev, has been in power for almost three decades, and many of the country's top businessmen have been splashed across headlines for bribery and money laundering around the world, scrambling for assets after the collapse of the Soviet Union. What's it like doing business in Kazakhstan? In many respects, it's quite a tough neighbourhood. It's a dangerous place to be a supporter of the political opposition or to campaign against corruption, or to be, for example, a a trade unionist. The government had, uh, in the past, instructed troops to open fire on on striking workers. A state of emergency has been imposed after at least 11 people were killed in clashes between protesters and police on Friday. Critics of the regime had disappeared. People who had been on the verge of exposing corrupt practices had also disappeared. So I did sort of realise why... The, the chap who'd phoned me up well, might want to remain anonymous. Reviewing the leaked documents, Guy focused on the emails from April 2011 that would form the basis of his explosive investigation. The one that caught my eye uh, was a single page. It was an email. It had been signed by His Royal Highness the Duke of York and the email appeared to come from the Duke's personal email account. And it had been sent to a man called Kengez Rakishev, who I promptly googled, uh, who turned out to be a wealthy oligarch with great political connections. He's the son-in-law of Kazakhstan's defence minister, and his dad was the mayor of Astana, one of Kazakhstan's major cities. And what did the email tell you? 
it was slightly short on detail, but from what I could ascertain, Prince Andrew was contacting Mr. Rakishev on behalf of a Greek water company, an infrastructure company called Edyap, and a Swiss bank called Aras Capital. What this email seemed to be saying was Prince Andrew was trying to put his consortium in touch with people in Kazakhstan who would help it bid for contracts to install new water systems in a couple of major cities. Why would Prince Andrew be sending these emails? It was unclear really what Prince Andrew's role was. I mean, he's no great expert in how to run a sewage system, and he's also not particularly an expert in how to finance a a complex infrastructure project. But one thing he does have is a good contacts book, because he'd been travelling around the world for years, thanks to the generosity of the British taxpayer. It seemed that he was acting as some sort of fixer. To Guy, this deal seemed murky. The private email address suggested this wasn't related to Prince Andrew's public role as a trade envoy. So Guy, why would he need to do this? For years, there'd always been an element of mystery about Prince Andrew. It's a royal contact I had described him as a sort of hot air balloon, uh, by which he meant he had no visible means of support. He had lived almost like a billionaire. He, he enjoys expensive holidays. He'd been travelling in private jets. He'd been staying on yachts. He'd inherited the Queen Mother's old house in in Windsor, but he'd spent nearly £8 million doing that up. He'd acquired a huge ski chalet in Verbier, which had cost, we think, £13 million. He'd also managed to clear his ex-wife's debts, and yet he had no visible form of of income. All he really had that we knew about was a a Navy pension of maybe £30,000 a year, and then an allowance from the Queen of a couple of hundred thousand pounds a year, and that was broadly it which was, you know, lots of cash and and enough to live quite comfortably. It wasn't enough to pursue the lifestyle that he was pursuing. And that wasn't all. More astonishing details emerged about the international business dealings of the Queen's son. As well as the emails about this water contract, there were also another tranche of emails that seemed to be related to the sale of Sunning Hill, which was Prince Andrew's house in, in Windsor, to a different oligarch, Now, the house had been placed on the market in the mid-2000s. It was the home he'd lived in with Sarah Ferguson before their divorce. There'd always been a very funny smell about the sale of this property. It had been put on the market for £12 million, and no one had bought it. It was big, slightly ugly, and not a particularly convenient location. It wasn't that near to London. They'd just not been able to sell it. And then suddenly, after a number of years, in 2008, it had emerged that actually they had sold the house. It was bought by the son-in-law of the president of Kazakhstan for £3 million more than the asking price. His name was Timur Kulibayev, a second Kazakh oligarch, who was known to have social links to Prince Andrew. So what were you thinking, Guy, when you read these leaked emails? So when we're talking about Sunning Hill, Buckingham Palace had always insisted that the entire sale had been completely handled by some trust and that Prince Andrew was completely at arm's length. This, these emails showed his office dealing directly with Mr Kulibayev and his agents. So they showed that Buckingham Palace had put out some very misleading information, which is obviously questionable. Also, the British taxpayers had for years been paying for Andrew to fly around the world 
so that he could promote British businesses. This had cost about £15 million in his last decade in the role. But this deal didn't seem to have anything to do with British businesses. We were specifically not meant to be paying for him to use the contacts he makes flying around the world to enrich himself. Is this the sort of thing we want our royal family to do, to fly around the world, sort of glad-handing appalling dictators? I don't think it is. So, Guy, were you nervous to chase this story? I mean, you were going up against some pretty powerful people, two high-level oligarchs, the Duke of York, and some heavyweight international businesses. No, I was quite the reverse. I was very excited. I thought it was a cracking story and uh, one that deserved to be told. So your editor at the Daily Mail gave you the green light to start doing some investigating. Where did you start? Presumably you weren't getting straight on the phone to Buckingham Palace. No, there were a few ways that one could potentially go at this story. Mr. Rakishev, the Kazakh oligarch, I could have—I had his email address after all. I could have emailed him and said, what was going on here? Again, uh, oligarchs are not known for wanting to have their affairs placed under a media spotlight. So I thought it was very unlikely he'd help me either. And then there was, of course, a Swiss bank. Swiss banks are not the most open institutions. But the Greek company, Edyap, that interested me. On the various email chains, there were a number of people who weren't directors, but were quite senior people in the company. And I thought, actually, we've got here a dozen, maybe maybe even more, maybe 15, 20 people who could potentially actually fill me in on all the details I'd need to know. It makes sense to go to where the story is. So I booked a hotel in Athens and a flight and I set off the following Monday. The Greece trip started off badly, three days of knocking on doors and no answers. Board members from the Greek sewage company ADAP had moved on, no one would talk, people were away on holiday. Then, suddenly, a former senior employee from the company responded. I had a uh, what we call a fixer, which is a, a local journalist helping me. We'd spent a couple of days, we'd visited the water company, we'd tried to speak to their PR people. They'd all claimed they knew nothing about this whole thing. Even, the, even one of the people who had actually written one of the emails I had claimed she knew nothing about this deal. OK, so it sounds like you'd hit a bit of a wall? When you knock on someone's door as a journalist, you also carry with you a letter in case the person whose door I'm knocking is out saying look this is who I am here's why I've called and if you want to talk to me I'll help me here are my contact details and then came a mysterious phone call an invitation to lunch but no address he actually texted me a, a, a string of numbers which turned out to be a GPS location. Follow this GPS direction, you'll get to a lay-by on a, on a very remote road. Telephone me, here's my mobile number, and I will talk you in from there to my villa. This sounds very cryptic. Did it feel safe to go? I was a bit concerned because I was going to have to hire a car and drive several hours outside of Athens to meet someone I'd, I'd never met and didn't really know. I got in touch with my boss and I said, if by any chance you don't hear from me tomorrow evening, this is the location I've been told to go to. This is the person's name. This is his mobile number. So if the police need to come looking for me, here's where you start. So you turn up in this remote location 
And what did the company source tell you? Did he confirm that Andrew had helped them get this contract? Actually, we mostly made small talk for most of it and drank some great wine and, and ate a very nice stew. Sounds pretty nice. Um, yeah. Uh, and when the coffee came round, I said, look, look, now about the business in hand, what can you tell me? I assume you, you want to do it on a uh, what we call an off-the-record basis. And what does that mean, to be off-the-record? Well, it would mean that I wouldn't name him in my article. I wouldn't quote him. I wouldn't identify him as the source of the information. I, he didn't need to be on the record. We had the, the, the documents that would stand up the story. What we were really after was the sort of context in which those documents had been sent. And did he confirm that Andrew had helped them to get the well, contract? Well, the story he told me was really interesting and it helped fill in all the gaps in my knowledge. So what he said was that he was working for ADAP for uh, a number of years. ADAP was a, a local water company, but it was looking to expand. And the chief executive had decided that actually they could make loads of money by signing some deals to provide water and sewage systems overseas in other countries in the developing world. They pursued a contract in Azerbaijan and they'd got down to the final three bidders for a very valuable infrastructure project, but they hadn't got it over the line. And what he said that the company had eventually realized is that if you're going to do if you're going to win these deals in countries like Kazakhstan, Libya, Azerbaijan, all these sort of places that are run by a kleptocratic elite, there often comes a point at which you you have to grease someone's palm. So this is where Prince Andrew comes in. What they decided was they'd go into business with a Swiss bank. The bank would structure the deal, do all the money stuff and, and carry out the negotiations with the government. ADAP would simply be the technical guys who came and ran the deal. He said that the Swiss people had brought in Prince Andrew to help make introductions to the right people in Kazakhstan and it had all gone really rather swimmingly and it had looked for a time like they were going to win this contract. So how did you find out that the Duke of York was expecting a £4 million commission from this sewage deal? Well, I asked my source what, what on earth the Duke of York was doing, what the basis of that relationship was, why he was involved. And, and he said very simply, look, this job in Kazakhstan was to supply water to 40 million homes and it would have been about a 500 million euro deal. And as the sort of fixer who'd put that in place, the prince would have got a commission of about 1% of the value of the deal. For simply making a few introductions, he would have been paid 5 million euros or 4 million pounds. That seems like a pretty big price for an introduction. Yeah, I mean, there's two ways of looking at it. If you're the Duke of York and all you've got to do is send a few emails and hey presto you get four million quid that's brilliant equally if you're the sewage company and all you need is this person to make an introduction and hey presto you get half a billion euros contract it's almost a small price to pay everyone's a winner everyone's a winner the deal with Kazakhstan never actually happened but it was now clear to Guy that Prince Andrew seemed to be acting as a high-level fixer, securing a commission in questionable circumstances. So, Guy, did you have enough information to write the story at this stage? More or less, yes, I did. Uh, but there were a few hoops that still needed to be jumped through. Whenever you're writing about someone, uh, it's obviously normally quite good practice uh, and necessary, really, to contact the people you're writing about and ask for their version of events. 
So before we could write the write the story, I had to I had to go back to London and put in some calls to Mr. Rakishev, to the Greek sewage company, and also to the, the Swiss bank, and of course also to Buckingham Palace. So how did you go about approaching the palace? Did you have to explain how you got hold of these dodgy emails? I decided that I'd, it would be a bad idea to, to wade in straight away and tell the palace exactly what we had and all the details we knew. I wanted to see what, how they would respond if I just simply put the important parts of the story to them. Before I told them I had copies of the, the emails from the prince and documents that stood up the story, I just thought I'd ask them about it a bit more generally. The Duke of York's press secretary, a man called David Pogson, sounded sceptical. He said, oh, that may not, that doesn't sound true to me, sort of thing. I asked a number of questions. Was it true that he'd helped them pursue business in Kazakhstan? Was it true that he'd introduced them to uh, Mr. Rakishev? I, I asked about eight or nine questions that I knew the answer to them was yes. And the response came back from the palace at lunchtime the next day. And let's just read their response to your questions. So to every single one... Prince Andrew's press secretary answered... No, this is not true. So how did that make you feel at that point? Well, it's interesting. I mean, in journalism, there's a kind of code when we're dealing with spin doctors and, and press spokespeople. And that code is that they can try and mislead you. They can try and spin you a line. But they shouldn't ever tell you an outright lie. They shouldn't try and deny something that is self-evidently true or that they know to be true. Obviously, this seems to cross that line. And I thought that was slightly disgraceful. And the reason I say that is that communication staff at Buckingham Palace are public servants. Their wages are paid by the public. And the thread of trust that runs between the public and the royal family is, after all, based on the expectation that at the end of the day, these people are public figures and we have a right to know what they're getting up to. So what happened next? I rang up the Duke of York's press secretary and I thanked him for his response to my emailed questions. And I then said, what I haven't yet told you is that I've got a number of emails, some of them sent by the Duke of York himself, arranging this deal that you're saying never happened, that never even existed. I'm going to send you a copy of those emails and I would like you to explain to me how you reconcile their existence with the answers you've just given me. Wow. What was their response to that? First of all, the press secretary tried to claim that the emails were fake. I said, I know they're not fake. I've established they're not fake. I've spoken to the people who received them, and I know this is all true. The next people we heard from were the Duke of York's lawyers, Harbottle and Lewis. And from their correspondence, they at this point decided to change their story somewhat. They said, well, the email's genuine, but if you publish it, it will breach his data protection rights. It's a private email. And they've started threatening dire consequences. Did you get the sense that they were panicking? A bit. And, and actually, you know, the data protection line is a pretty flimsy way to try and prevent publication. There, there are massive exemptions in data protection law, particularly for stories that are clearly in the public interest, as this one was. So we were confident that they weren't going to be able to prevent us publishing the story. We were concerned, of course, that if there were any mistakes in the story, if I got any facts wrong, they would come after us. It must have been a sleepless night for you before this went to press. 
I mean, this is about to be a huge front page splash. What was going through your mind? When you're doing a story like this, the stakes are quite high. It's very stressful. There's a degree of paranoia. You, you read the piece and you reread it again and think, you know, have I got something wrong here? Is there a big hole in this story that I've not seen? Is there some obvious massive flaw? Is there a huge mistake lurking out there somewhere that's going to get us sued? And if we do get something wrong, that's going to be humiliating. This is a front page story. It's the sort of thing that if you get it wrong, it can, it can destroy your career. And at the same time, in the background, you know, there were obviously conversations happening that I was not privy to between Buckingham Palace and all the, the prince's lawyers and our lawyers, and I had a bit of a sleepless night. The story about Andrew and a £4 million kickback ran on the front page of the Daily Mail on the 21st of May 2016. The Duke of York carries out an engagement in the City of London, despite mounting pressure to step down as UK trade envoy. It was followed by another scathing piece on May the 23rd, titled The Truth About Andrew's £15 million House Sale. And the price of the monarchy? The prince insists it's still good value for money. And exposing the links to the corrupt Kazakh regime. This is all done on behalf of the UK. So Guy, what was the fallout after this scoop? Well, it was a, it was a big talking point that weekend. It was a big story. It was on the TV news. It was on the radio news. It was followed up in all sorts of other newspapers. And it made real waves. Were there any other responses from the palace? No, none at all. I mean, I think they took the view that the best way to make this story go away was to say nothing and hope that we didn't have any more any more emails that that might give us a day three sort of story and why was it so important for the public to know about this story well we were finally proving that prince andrew had profited off the back of a country or had sought to profit off the back of a country run by one of the most corrupt dictators in the world who has a horrific human rights record and that's a bad look for the royals it's a bad look for britain and people uh, and our readers of course have a right to know what our ruling class is up to and how they are using the status that is afforded to them by the public guy's story was published back in 2016 since then, Prince Andrew has withdrawn entirely from public life after his friendship with convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein was exposed. The Duke of York generating a new wave of questions. Prince Andrew denied he ever saw his... Looking back, do you feel that these deals you uncovered were just the tip of the iceberg? The big question hanging over the whole Jeffrey Epstein affair is, you know, why did Prince Andrew become such friends with him in the first place? Prince Andrew was staying at his home, he was staying on his private island, travelling in his jet, taking extensive hospitality from him. He became friends with Jeffrey Epstein because Jeffrey Epstein was really rich and Prince Andrew needs rich patrons. And this theme, you know, this sort of general theme of doing things that he shouldn't do because of money... That does run deep with Prince Andrew. It got him into trouble here. It got him into trouble with Jeffrey Epstein. And I don't doubt that it'll probably get him in trouble again. But you were staying at the house of yes. a convicted sex offender. It was a convenient place to stay. He so seems to be a very poor judge of character. And these people are looking to exploit his royal status for their own gain. You have a weekly column in the mail, Guy Adams Investigates, so I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more from you on the podcast. But what advice would you give to other investigative journalists? I hope that what I've 
sort of talked about today demonstrates that if you want to really crack stories and to do a proper job, and you have to do a proper job with stories like this, it will take time and it will take effort and it will take a certain amount of money. I spent two or three weeks working on this story and I had to go to Greece. You do have to invest in quality journalism. And if you invest in proper reporting, you will get proper results. If I was talking to another journalist, I'd say just be thorough. You know, don't leave any stone unturned. Speak to every single person you can possibly speak to, because the worst that can happen is they won't talk to you. That's it from us this week on Scoop, a male plus podumentary taking an insider look at the art of journalism investigations. I'm Amelia Hempel. You can follow Guy on Twitter at Guy Adams to read more of his stories. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google and Spotify. 